Thank you for joining us at MindSpeak, the show that delves into global issues with a local perspective. This is a voice, not an echo. If you can't speak your mind, you can't be human. Hi folks, this is Mark Rossi. We're back to another episode of MindSpeak. This will be episode 220, The Global Power That Is India. Now, even though this show is definitely about the country of India, and we only have about an hour or so, it's really about the thoughts of India currently as they are now. You really can't cover a complicated and diverse country is India in an hour. It's just not really possible. I, in fact, it's so diverse and so complicated. I mean, it would take a number of hours to really go through everything. So you're going to forgive me if I'm not bringing about lots and lots of Indian history and things. We'll, we'll reflect on it now and then for the course of the show. But it's really about what India has become and, and probably just the last like 30 to 40 years. It's been a big difference and and why we now say the global power that is India. That that's the reason why. Because we're going to be talking about that. We're not really going to be talking about the past of India very much. Maybe that's another show. Maybe that's a history show, or maybe that's just a a show that's strictly about a particular culture. But in this particular case, we are going to talk about what I feel is pretty much the modern India. Okay. Now, when we talk about India, one of the issues that that I have with with people. Is, is is if it doesn't seem like they really have noticed the changes that have gone on in India. I think part of that is just because you know India isn't really out there, you know, uh, in, in terms of uh, of a PR campaign or, or a gigantic history lecture throughout the world about this is how we are now versus how people have seen us before, how we were before. They don't really do that. I'm not really sure why. Maybe they're just too busy modernizing the country and coming up to the forefront of civilization now. That could be a good reason. But uh, that's part of the reasons why sometimes people have fallen behind on their knowledge and their perception of India. Because I really don't think it has anything to do with uh, people looking down on India or people being racist or prejudicial. No, a lot of people just don't know all that is now transpired in the last, let's say, even 40 years. So you're going to get a lot of people, if you mention India, and, and I don't mean just here in America, I mean anywhere else. You know, they're going to think about poverty, and they're going to think about diseases, they're going to think about dirty rivers, or they're going to think about people eating, you know, curry, or, or, or folks hanging out at the Taj Mahal, or everybody running around with turbans, and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that none of that's true. Especially since that was a lot more common of an image or even a reality in India, let's say, 50 years and before. Sure. But India now is not the same thing at all. They've made great, great strides in taking care of the poverty that's in that country. It's not to say that it's zero. I don't know if there's a country out there that's zero. Okay? And I'm talking about America over here. We don't have zero here. But it's no longer... The huge problem that it was even 50 years ago. They continued to address it by becoming a more modern country. By adding lots and lots of manufacturing on there. 
uh, India has a, a certain advantage in in um, Southeast Asia that's different than most of those other countries in, in the sense that the language English, which is uh, an international language, is still a big big part of uh, of of their society. I know it's uh, you know an after afterward gift, uh, uh, if you want to call it a gift, uh, from from those that colonized the British, you know, back in the day. But nevertheless, it's still a big part of, of the culture of India, and it's still a big part of the how they interact with the world, and, and it's still a huge part of what's spoken there in India today. Well, we're going to talk about more than that, of course, because it's not the only language. But that has helped them in many ways have a faster rebound by making that international connection and, and doing more manufacturing and, and becoming a much more stable country. Because remember, it was only independent as of 1947. And this is the year 2021. So we're not talking about a country that's been independent that long. But they've made an enormous amount of progress. Now, one of the things that that India has tackled, and it's good things for you to understand, because sometimes people don't realize that, India can become com complex. It's not, it's not a country that has a single culture or a single point of view or even a single language. It simply doesn't, and it's probably never going to. Because in many ways, India is a collection of nation-states from the past. All right? You had different, different sections of India that literally became its own kingdom. It had its own culture, had its own religious spin on things, and had its own language. In some historical ways, it was similar to the old Italy that was also a collection of nation-states. But Italy had a different type of advantage because even though there might have been different nation-states in Italy, you know, you, you, had the, you had the Rome over here, and you had the Florence over there, and you had, you know... Venice over here and etc they all still shared pretty much the same language and in many ways the same type of uh, religious practices so therefore even though each region was often in competition next to the other one and, uh, and of course sometimes even at war with the other one it's kind of what happened with Marco Polo when he came back from China next thing you know he was put in jail because you know his, his particular nation state was at a war with someone else but India had many, many more of them than Italy did, but they all had a distinct language, a distinct point of view, a distinct belief, a distinct culture that was tremendously different than the other ones. You can't really compare somebody from, and you can even say that now, not just 100 years ago in India, somebody that would be, uh, let's say, uh, Bengali uh, uh, versus uh, uh, another person that might come from the, the Tamil area. You're literally talking about a different language, a different practice of religion. You know, you get somebody from Bengali, they, they have a good chance that they're going to be practicing Hinduism, where somebody from Tamil, they, they might be uh, practicing Islam. There's some Hinduism too, but more going to be more his Islam there. So those are completely different languages and completely different cultures, and therefore often completely different religions. So one of the big tasks that India had to face unlike other nations now other nations have faced this before but not to the complexity that India had to face they had to figure out well how do you become a stable country without unity 
Okay, and then how do you get unity when everybody's speaking like literally 20 different languages? And in fact, in India, there's about like 23 different major languages. There's like 300 minor languages and there's actually over 3,000 dialects. So that means even in a region, you might have 10 or 20 or 30 different dialects of maybe just the one language. Because India is gigantic. When we talk about India, you have to talk about numbers. There's no way around it. China has the most people in the country in the world. India is the second most. There are over a billion people there. So it's not hard to even understand why there can be so many cultures and there could be so many even dialects inside a language, inside a region. And how incredible an obstacle that could possibly be. So India wisely allowed the language of Hindi, a standard language of Hindi, to be practiced throughout the country. So basically, if you're, if you're trying to connect with the government, you're going to be speaking Hindi. There's a good chance if you're going to a university, even if it's in your region, it's going to be, it's going to be taught in Hindi. So having that national language, which was perfect for the military, perfect for the postal system, perfect for the government, and of course perfect for education, that allowed the entire country to have something in common to be united around. The good thing about something like that is when you do something like that, the first thing you have to think in your mind, and the Indians thought of this right away, is this, even though it might be considered a mandate, you still have to be sensitive to the, to the regional uh, sensibilities and the regional cultures and alert regional feelings about something. So it's not like you're going around with a policeman hitting everybody over the head. You must speak Indian or I'm going to hit you in the head. You know, you explain to them in the most commonsensical way. Hey, listen, we have to have a way for all of us to communicate. If we're going to have a stable national government, if we're going to have an actual company, excuse me, country that that works from one end to the other, that we're not wondering what's going on. So thank God they were very sensible to understand that that was necessary to do, and it was done without a real big incident. Not to say that. Everybody who speaks Hindi, who likes to speak in Bengali, especially since that's probably the language of their family or their region for, I don't know, a thousand years, you know, they're going to be like, yeah, okay, I do this because it's necessary, but it's not like I love this, and that's fine. It does mean, though, there's a good chance that you're going to have a person in India that probably on the, on the very basic is going to be speaking at least three languages. They're going to probably be speaking enough Hindi to get by. They're going to be speaking English to a certain extent. And they're going to speak whatever their particular language from their region or from their culture is. It could be Punjabi. It could be Tamil. It could be Bengali. Uh, Maritha, Punjabi. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, really. But that, gu that guarantees you're going to be at least operating on three languages. And in some cases, some folks even more. Especially if they're traveling people. Or if they're just people that, that can pick up other languages very well and they just like going around doing things, particularly if they're from the government. I, I talked to an Indian fellow one time that retired from the government. He told me he spoke eight languages. He said all the major ones and in Hindi and English. I'm like, there's 23 languages there. What do you mean the major ones? But he was just talking about like the biggest areas of the country that spoke the most of that language. He pretty much got a good good mastery of it.
So, wow. But let's talk about some numbers over here, okay? Even though they are striving on reducing their poverty down to something that would be considered acceptable. And I'm not trying to sound a jerk about that. I don't know what acceptable poverty really is. Who the hell wants to be poor? Who the hell really wants to see that? So I got that. So I'm not trying to be insensitive myself. But, you know, I, I think when you're coming from a, a, a country that had 25% poverty and you, you bring it down to 9 and 10%, that's, a, that's an enormous, uh, you know, decrease in enormous productivity for your country, an enormous stride that people can look at and say, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Obviously, they have to continue to go down further, but those are the kind of numbers we're talking about. And when you're looking at those numbers, you remember you're talking about a billion people. So even if 25% of India at one point or another was, you know, uh, in, in the poverty level, think about 25% of a billion. That's 250 million people poor. That's almost like the entire population of the United States poor. So... Everything in India is big. These numbers are just incredible when you have to think about them, about all the challenges that they've had to face and continue to, to face. Somebody told me one time, and once I understood the numbers and I understood more about what was going on over there, then it made sense. But one time they told me, they go, you know, Maritha is our, is our smallest language, you know. Only 83 million people speak it. I'm like, what? 83 million people? You know how many countries in the world that don't even have 83 million people? And you have a region that speaks just 83 million people speak Maritha. Turns out that that happens to be number 10 on the language list in India. One of the lowest speaking of the languages. 83 million people only. I mean, wow. I mean, just think about it. It boggles your mind. And that's one of the more ancient of the languages. Some of the literature and culture from that particular area goes back even before some of the other languages and cultures in India. So it's pretty it's pretty incredible. But it's still one of the smaller ones. I mean, can you believe that? Now, for the longest time, this is before colonization of Britain and even during colonizations of Britain, which really didn't really bring up the, uh, I would think, the standard of living that much. Ironically, colonialism doesn't really do that all that much. They just make themselves believe that they do we brought you new stuff so now everything's better yeah okay thank you <laughs> it, it never i never understood that historical perspective that the colonizer comes in and they thinking they're doing you a favor uh no you're not but for the longest time india has been a member of what you want to console the third world because of the disease and the poverty and the uh, the infrastructure that wasn't even close to being modern yet. Remember, there was lots and lots of of points in that in that uh, country that was completely agricultural and rural. You know, I, I remember reading about um, the railroad coming to India and you know how only certain areas could even have it because you remember you have to do so much tremendous type of work just to be able to build bridges and, and and fill in swamps and and go over agricultural land and everything i mean it's harder doing that stuff than it is just laying down the tracks and letting the train roll you have to do like an entire you know topographical geographical like reformation just to be able to get anything like that done so that that's an enormous job now you have to do that to an certain extent in any of the countries when the railroad came but it's not the same 
Quite frankly, it's probably easier doing it in the desert than it is doing it in the swamp. So at least you got something more solid to work on. Versus you got to get all that junk out of there and go from there. So they've had so many incredible challenges over the years. And, and continue to now become, uh, in their own right, you know, a, a telecommunications uh, a giant, a big manufacturing uh, giant. Many textiles come from India. Or some pharmaceuticals come from India that are produced over there. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but a great amount of the spices that we consume in the world come from India. And I don't mean just the spices that they use for their, their particular uh, cultural meals. I mean just in general. A great amount of it comes from there. It always have. And hopefully it always will because I don't know how many too many places are going to replace some of these spices if India is not doing it. So, again, another big contribution to the world that people do not realize. Now, I've always found it ironic to a certain extent. And then later on I understood what happened. But even when I was growing up, I always thought it was weird that you know, uh, India has still used a lot of the English, a lot of the mannerisms, even some of the, the, the literary techniques of, of their colonizers. And they didn't really branch out for quite some time until like into the mid-1990s and onward. Now, India went through what I would call, and, and it's still in to a certain extent, but not as aggressive as it was even 20 years ago, but they went through their bout of nationalism. Thankfully, though, India did their nationalism a whole lot different than most other countries do. A lot of countries, when nationalism takes a grip on them, bad things happen. Because it's often used as a disguise for racism, for, uh, for commercially uh, robbing one group versus another, for sometimes doing military ventures outside their borders. Because of nationalism. We're this. So we're going to go do that. I don't need to name names. This is pretty clear what, what's been done. And sometimes. Instead of helping unify. Because that's usually the excuse of nationalism. Is we have to unify. And, and they, they wind up just becoming. A big unit of idiots. Versus doing something collectively. To make things better for the common people. This is what nationalism should be. Most of the times it's not. It just usually becomes a giant failure and a giant excuse for theft and violence. India, thankfully, did it in a different way. And, and I'd say that it's, it's an amazing story to tell. And I think other countries that either want to adopt this or maybe they might want to switch their nationalism around to something a little bit more sane, this would be the way to do it. In 1995, they wound up putting in uh, a political party. That was nationalistic. And one of the things they had said was is that we should reconsider seriously some of the colonial habits that we have, some of the colonial ideas we have, and try to get back to some of our roots, who we are as Indians. And remember, when we're talking about that, we're talking about various cultures inside of India. So it's not just one group that we're trying to focus on. They were trying about talking about all of them trying to get back to their roots, all of them trying to bring more of what that culture was to the country. Because, yeah, they were united as Indians, and yeah, there was no longer somebody domineering them, and yeah, they're speaking Hindi to connect everybody together. And yeah, English is not going away, whether they get a little upset with it or uncomfortable with it or not, it's going to remain. 
but no one says that it needed to be a dominant force. And instead of being anti-English, instead of being bigoted, instead of going around beating up anybody that looks British or you know attacking somebody who's an American or something, the, the Indians were, were quite wise and quite nonviolent about simply saying we, we need to start changing things first because whatever we change first sends a message about what we're trying to do. So one of the first things they had changed was they changed the city of Bombay and it's now Mumbai. Apparently, Bombay was like a, a horrible pronunciation of what it should have been in the past anyway by the colonizers of Britain. So changing it in many ways was not just a, a form of saying we're Indian and we're nationalistic and we're proud of our people and blah, blah, blah. It might have just been a historical correction because it was already butchered for so many years it should never have been Bombay. It was simply the wrong way of going about it. There were some commercial fears at first from the people that were part of that city that used to be called Bombay because they're like, gee, we don't want to lose our international recognition you know, and what is it going to cost us to change everything? we got to change all the letterhead, all the signs, all the this, all the that. And thankfully, the, the party that was pushing this was pretty realistic about understanding that, yes, it's a process. We're not doing everything overnight. We're not going to cause an enormous expense, you know, when you still got to feed people and operate a city and all that other stuff that you got to do. And yes, this is important to our national identity in the end. But we understand this takes time. So, I know that took a little time for them to do, but they did it. And they did it successfully because nobody really misses the town of Bombay. Nobody really cares. They know that center of Bombay is still important about what they're doing over there. And people adopt to it pretty quickly. Maybe because, you know, it's not hard to say Bombay, just like it's easy to say Bombay. So, maybe it could be that. Maybe it's just... You know, we got a city that we all can at least understand and, and, and we can actually pronounce. You know, and maybe it might have been harder if they picked a, a city name that had like 15 syllables or something. <laughs> that could have been a problem. <laughs> People would just went and said, uh, you know, uh, Bombay. Remember, it used to be Bombay. Thank God they didn't have to do that. They were able to come up with something short, something accurate, and, and something that everybody could remember. And that, that worked out, I guess you could say, not only culturally, but in terms of the marketing. But I give a great amount of credit to the type of nationalism that India has really uh, implemented in this country because it wound up being a positive thing. People are proud of their country. They are proud of their culture. They are proud of their language. Um, they, it, it did a great deal to help uh, understand more of re re religious differences because remember, folks, there's nothing wrong with religious differences. It's just when you make them to be something evil or you make them to be an issue that it becomes a problem no one in their right mind says that you can't have Islam next to Hinduism next to Buddhism and next to Christianity those are some of the major religions that are still part of India and none of them are going away so unless you want to have wars with each other over that and thankfully that hasn't been the case for the most part. I mean, there was a, a, a point where there was, because um, uh, there's also the religion of Sikhs, and they had some uh, serious issues going on with uh, a revival of a type of an extreme version of it, and they became kind of like a problem for a while, until uh, thankfully they were able to uh, 
recognized what was necessary, you know, to conduct themselves in the in the country and for other people to respect them and vice versa. And there hasn't been such an issue anymore like it was even 30 years ago. And that's great. But for the most part, India has been pretty successful in doing that. If you recall, and if you don't recall, I'll mention this to you, okay? India used to have more Islamic practicing people than it does now. Because a big part of India wind up separating and becoming Pakistan, which was pretty much now a Muslim country. I mean, there's still people in the in, in, in Pakistan that that actually practice Christianity and, and practice Buddhism and, and practice Hinduism. They're just not as number larger the numbers at all. They're pretty small communities. Where India, it's it's much larger, and there's a huge amount of people who practice Islam in uh, in India. I think uh, from what I was reading here, uh, it approaches about like 15 percent of the country of a billion people. So that's still a lot of people that, that practice it there. I don't know if they simply didn't decide to go with the uh, the other uh, country that, that broke off from it and became Pakistan or not. Or maybe they were just too far away physically in the country and they're like, we'll stay here, we're, we're fine. I'm not really sure how exactly that played out. But I know a big portion of the country that was Islamic wind up becoming Pakistan. Thankfully, um, they haven't had... Um, any kind of a major cross battle wars, but there's been a couple of uh, conflicts, and, and, and both of them are nuclear armed now, and both of them are not exactly friends, but at least they're not exactly active enemies either. So that's something to say, and, that, and that's a good thing because it's not really necessary. There's still a point of contention with India over the area called. Uh, And that is a problem there with um, with Pakistan to this day. You got terrorists that come out of the area, this area called Kashmir. Unfortunately, both sides claim it. And right now, I think the Indians have some a more administrative control over it and have more troops there than than Pakistan do. And that's created some local terrorist groups that have that have attacked a number of times into India. So that that hasn't really been settled yet, unfortunately. I've never been there before. It's one of the few countries we'll talk about here on the show that I haven't been to yet. Pakistan or India or Kashmir. But I've seen the pictures and you know it really does look like a beautiful place. And I can see why people would want to uh, you know, protect it. But it's always seemed to me, and maybe this is controversial for anybody who's living, living in India or listening from Pakistan. And thank you both, by the way. We have listeners from both of those countries. God bless. But I've always felt, and I haven't seen anything that's persuaded me differently, that it, it could become its own autonomous region, that being Kashmir, that still had the input and influence of both of the countries where they could share in that type of autonomy. I know autonomy sounds like you shouldn't share. It should only be by yourself. But you could still have an autonomous region that has input from both sides. Maybe even financial or cultural aid from both sides as well. Until they could figure out what they want to do from there. It would stop a lot more of the, 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 the conflicts they can have. The border skirmishes or people punching each other out or shooting each other. I think at one point they literally had a situation where soldiers put down the guns and they were actually just punching each other in the face. I mean, I'm glad they didn't kill each other. Don't get me wrong, but 
again, punching each other over the face over a, a small piece of land that, other than the question of national pride, doesn't really have any instrumental value to either one of the countries. If you think about it, if you look on the map, whether it went its own way or not, it's not going to decide the destiny of Pakistan or India. And I think once people finally come to realize that, you know, it, it's going to be one of the solutions of, of that area. That's just my input on it, okay? Yeah, but I really don't think, as beautiful as it is, it's worth for anyone to die over. Nobody on either side. Or those that live in Kashmir, okay? Now, India has done a great job on doing all these things. But if you think about it, I don't think they would have a choice but to do a great job in India. Because with all the things we've talked about, you become an independent country now. Now you got to figure out a way to mobilize people. Even in 1947, it was close to a billion people. And, and now it's over a billion people. Okay? Uh, 23 different major languages. Okay? What do you do about colonialism? How do we use English to our advantage to try to get some marketplace out there and create stuff and build things and... And, and, and have a military because we have to have a military even if we're more peaceful of a nation we still have to have one and how do you have one that's a convincing thing I don't know if anyone's realized or not but India's had a number of border wars with China and, and most recently just a couple of years ago over in the Himalayas which they won and thankfully they did for some sick reason for the last few decades China just believes that this border is theirs and they can do this and they can do that it's a problem with China, and you can see that. If anyone is ever skeptical about what I'm saying about China, just look at things like this. They are not necessary unless you just like being a bully, unless you just like being evil and trying to take things that don't belong to you, whether that's the South China Sea or islands that don't belong to you or the border uh, where, where India is in the Himalayas. And they've been there for thousands of years. So it's not hard to see that there's a trend there. Uh, it's a dangerous trend. That's why no one should take them lightly, but also no one should take China for granted by their word that they're going to do this because they're always going to wind up doing something else. Even though the truth has always been, always been, that many things that China does is not really in their national interest. They do this because they want to be belligerent, because they become rich and arrogant, because in many ways, all this Chinese crap about we're hurt because of the colonization days and all the harm that they did to us, in many ways now they themselves have become evil colonizers. Look at Tibet. There's almost nothing left there. Tibet monks murdered. Temples just burned and destroyed. How do you burn down a church? That's what a kanagog or a temple, it's all the same as a church. How do you burn it down? And I don't mean like one of them. I mean like thousands of them. Because you want to take over the place and we call it now China. Because somehow you believe it belongs to you. An entirely different culture than China. They speak a different language. They have a different religion. They have an entirely different cultural setup over there. There's nothing Chinese about it. Other than they look Asian. That's about it. So there's no national interest. Again, just theft, just colonization, and just robbery. And there's nothing more to put it. And they're trying to do the same thing with Taiwan, and they're trying to push India around as much as they can. Thankfully, India won't allow this. They won that, 
that bought a war only a couple of years ago. They have an active Navy and an Air Force. We're doing all we can to sell them what's necessary for them to defend themselves. I wish we could do more, but unfortunately, uh, at the moment here, we currently have administration that is more believing their own fantasies and then reality. So I wouldn't count on to do too much to help. Thankfully, India has become wise and more international. It's why they're starting to become, in their own right, a global power. They understand that they need to reach out. They can no longer be so insular. They need to reach out, and they have, to, to places like Japan and Australia, to Taiwan, to Vietnam, to Thailand, to Indonesia. All those places I just mentioned, folks, they are all targets of China. They're all vulnerable for bad things to happen, just as much as India has. And we claim a lot here in America about want to patrol that South China Sea and be against the Spratly Islands being militarized by China and we don't want them to control that because it's going to harm the economies and obviously it's going to put other countries at risk for being invaded, etc., etc., etc. And I believe my own country to a certain extent. I just don't believe that we have administration over here that, that has the vision or more importantly the the private parts that are necessary to, to put up the kind of fight where we need to do. Because I can tell you right now, if these folks, China, comes for Taiwan, and that's a real possibility, I'm not sure we're going to be there for Taiwan. And I don't know how long Taiwan would last against an all-out assault. Yeah, and we talked about this in the Taiwan show. It is much harder to take an island than it is to defend one. But it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. I love Taiwan. I love the people over there. They're bright, they're brave, they want to remain free. Definitely on their side, but without help, I don't, I don't see how they last long at all. Or, and more importantly, if they last any, any length at all, what's going to be left? I don't want to sound horrible and grim here, but, you know, you could win a war in Taiwan and, and your half your island is burnt to ash. And, and half your population is dead. So, does that sound like victory? So, we, we would hope that others would be in, more involved. But, it, to me, right now, it's a domino effect. India stands in the way of many things for China. And that's why they continue to, to mess with them. To try to spy on them. To try to mess with their trade. To try to mess with their border. They do this because they understand that uh, India is really the, the only one that's going to be able to do anything seriously against them if they want to move forward in the South China Sea or anywhere else in Southeast Asia. Because taking Taiwan might not be that difficult in the end if no one comes to their aid. No one stands with them. But taking the other places like India and Australia and Japan and stuff like that, well, they have a lot more, not only to lose, but they have a lot more to, to defend and they have a lot more that they can put out. But India would be the next target. I think India is starting to understand that more. I'm sorry to say that India has become a global power almost kicking and streaming in certain ways because I agree to the, with, the, with the national leaders of India that 
their progress should be on their own terms and that their progress should be, make sense and their should, progress should be able to things that they can afford versus putting themselves in debt in order to make the entire country middle class. I got that. It makes sense to me. But things are moving a lot faster around the world and around India than probably even India can, can appreciate or understand or even uh, allow. But there's no real choice. India is having to become more global whether they like it or not. They've had to become better in their air force. They had to become better with their navy. They had to become better with their army. These things have to become much more serious now. There is, there is no other way around that. I mean, if you think about it, the areas, let's say the Himalayas, even if India had every country in the world on its side and, and loved them to death, what the hell can anyone do over in, in Argentina to help you at the Himalayas? Not much. There isn't anybody there. You and China and Tibet. Tibet's already a slave state to China. So there's nobody there but you and China. I mean, other than us giving you a couple of guns and maybe some skis, there's not much more we can even do in America. It's going to be up to you. And India has shown that they're, they're definitely up to the task. And I think that's great because it helps the national pride. It certainly helps the military experience that's necessary to defend India in the future. Because India is vulnerable still. And, and thank God in many ways India has the nuclear weapon because <laughs> they're going to need it one day. Especially if someone attacks them. Because remember, India, being a very populous country, it's a lot like Taiwan in the sense that you launch some stuff over there, missiles, just conventional missiles. I mean, you're liable to kill thousands of people just with a couple of missiles. Now, you might say, well, there's a, more than a billion people there, Mark, so what's a couple thousand people going to really affect India? Well, it, that's war. That's, that's national pride. That's... That's more more casualties that will come. Because if a thousand comes, you know, on the first rally, what's going to be the next one? So when you when you're that packed, uh, you know, population intensive wise, just like Taiwan, anything that hits, anything that goes on over there, it has a real impact psychologically on the country, obviously physically. You know, it's not like it's not like in Australia. You could you could lob fifty missiles at, at Australia randomly. You might not even hit a person. You might kill like three kangaroos and, and, and a koala bear maybe. If there's any left from the forest fire of a couple of years ago. Well, I'm not making light of anything, but I'm just saying that it's more spacious there. India, Taiwan, some of these other places, it's not. So their, their losses and, 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 and the impact that any kind of serious war could have is, is no joke. And thankfully India has taken it seriously. They've also taken seriously trying to do whatever they can to not only modernize the country, but also try to bring the country financially up higher and higher, to try to bring the people out of poverty, to try to get people even in the lower middle class. I know they, they uh, undergo, especially with this new um, uh, prime minister, they tried to get more people from the rural area to come into the cities to work. You know, and for a while that was a, a successful thing, but unfortunately, with with, pand with the pandemic, that wound up killing a lot of people too, because they wound up catching it, going back to the village, spreading it. So, you know, who knew? So, I mean, it's kind of hard to uh, lay any blame to any of that, but it is part of them trying to get people out more, 
so they have important skills. I mean, you, if you think about it, it doesn't have to be a permanent situation where you're dumping all these villages into the city, making it bigger, so that you can get people to work in the factories. The truth of the matter is, is that they need those skills anyway for a modern world. So it might not be a bad thing to have them go there for a couple of years. And maybe factories might want to go out to some of these rural areas one day because now the people have gained all those city skills on, on understanding how to operate a cell phone, a, a fax machine, a network, a factory, you know, all of that. To have a, a more a more modern infrastructure in, in a previously rural area. You're going to need the skills anyway. And it would be more practical to do what they're doing, I think, than just to try to transfer the skills over there. What the hell is the point of teaching somebody how to work in a factory when your village doesn't have a factory? And the nearest one is like 300 miles away. Who wants to take a job like that? You're supposed to like commute six hours a day? That's crazy. Not practical. Even with a car. So some of this makes sense to me about what had to get done. Unfortunately, there's always a high price for progress. There's a high price of people dying because of that travel, of disease, uh, of, of how it, it harms the agricultural community. I can imagine, you know, you not have the same amount of people to do crops anymore because everybody's working in a factory in the city, you know, seven hours away. And that, so I don't say any of that lightly, and it's not like I don't understand that kind of impact because I do. But the country has to have a fair mix of of the modern and the old world, of the cultural, interesting, and understanding something that's going outside the country. Even though, in many instances and in many ways, India has been insular and has continued to be insular. They still have an international presence. They're still around everywhere. They still do their part to try to connect with the world. Not just because of sales and, and computing and, and, and factories and industry and, and manufacturing, which are naturally necessary and a component of you making your economy better and stronger. But I think they also understand, too, that they really can't afford anymore to be the shy guy on the international stage. They can't afford to, to say, uh, I think in the mind, because I think in the Indian mind, this has been there for a long time. You know, instead of saying, yeah, I'm India with great manufacturing capability, over a billion people. I have nuclear weapons. I win wars. I try to do the right thing internationally. I'm trying to improve my people versus the old way of thinking about yeah, we're, we're nice and peaceful people. We used to be a colony of Britain, and uh, we speak many languages. And uh, you want to come over and you know have some chicken? Uh, no. That used to be the old way of thinking. And that used to be the old way, even diplomatically, how to go on about things. So a way that wasn't confident. And now, I really think that India, more and more that I've seen, have talked to, and, and heard, and, and people that even just come from there, they sound more confident. They sound more more excited about being Indian and about India itself. They, they have that pride that wasn't even there 40 or 50 years ago. It's there now. And it needs to be there. No matter where politically you are in India, because remember, as we talked about, many cultures, many languages, many people. Well, guess what? There's also many political parties, too. You got everybody from the Environmental Green Party to the Communist Party. 
I mean, I think in, in any given stage, there's like 15 to 18 different parties that run on, on, on different uh, platforms for different offices. So, they're not of one mind in terms of politically. you got a lot of people that think, think different things. I talk to people all the time from India. And guess what? I have to find out first where they socially stand before I even care or worry about what part of India they're from, what language they're usually using, or, you know, whether they're ever in the military, or how much they travel. Pfft. Well, that's nothing compared to understanding where they socially stand because sometimes that is all that individual is working on. I've talked to social type people that all they care about is trying to figure out new ways to improve poverty. To get people more involved in what's going on, to get people more educated, to take people out of villages and and maybe bring them back later on when they become a doctor, because now they can become a, a vital part of that community, and some communities don't even have a doctor, that sort of thing, and that's their whole thing, you know. So it's good, it's good when you talk to someone from India to find out first where they're coming from, you know. Are they are they that rural Indian that went to the city? Are they the city Indian that never even went to the rural area before? They only sees India as part of the five major cities in the country. The cities that literally have 10 million or plus people. Some of them are bigger than New York in terms of the population. I mean, Bombay, uh, excuse me, uh, Mumbai is one of them. Um, New Delhi is another one. Cal Calcutta, which I think they changed as well. So uh, I think it's called Kolkata now, I think. That's how you pronounce it. It's close, but it's the original word that was necessary for that city. Again, thankfully, it's something easy to, to pronounce and not too difficult to remember. So that that's always helpful. Um, and, of course, you got people that live in the, the Himalayan area, the, the mountainous region area. you got people that live just around the harbor. So it's important where people are coming from and working from and their social, really, their social interests to know the type of Indian you're talking about. Because then from there, you can have a broader conversation or anything. Because I tell you the truth, you know, you could talk academically about the Himalayas all you want. But if you're talking about somebody from the city, and you're talking about that subject, I mean, they're not going to hold not a whole lot of what's going on there. Unless they were in the military and reserves and were serving over there for a little while. They're not going to know a whole lot. It's the same thing talking with somebody that comes from the Himalaya area, you know? I, I don't think they're going to know the new hip song that's playing in, in Kolkata right now. They're not. <laughs> you know? So, it, it being so large as it is, there also is so many varied interests involved in that, in that, in that entire country because there's so much work still to get done. So much work environmentally and, and how to become a modern country without polluting themselves and the whole planet. They're still having to work on that. As we all are. But, you know, they have a much bigger job. You remember about it. On any given day, you know, India is population-wise close to four times the population of the United States. And we're a pretty big country ourselves. Since they're only second to China, you're talking about everybody else they are larger with on every and every function possible, you know. So it makes it makes the country in many ways not only terribly interesting and extremely important, I feel, for the future of literally that entire region. 
But we don't know how important India is going to become to the future as well. There's a real chance that as India continues to modernize with its electronic industry and its digital formats and its pharmaceuticals and even in its science, we're going to see more and more things come out of India that are important, that can help the world. Surgeries and medications. India is interested in space. Who knows one day we're going to be having Indian on the moon. Or helping us out on Mars one day. You know, even though China has become a dangerous place and, and, and an evil government, that we'd love for them to put down the communism. Imagine what the world would be like if China can be really a part of it instead of just trying to try to take it over piece by piece. But China has already been to the moon and, and now they've been landing on Mars. So they're already out there doing what they need to be doing. And, and they are also doing all kinds of experiments and all kinds of scientific achievements. Who knows what they're going to share with the world or not. But it's great to have an India out there that's going in that same direction where I have to be a foe to anything that's decent, but rather being a friend. So I really think for the world, you know, having India as a great modern place, as a global power out there to try to balance things out, and, and, and also somebody that has the resources and the curiosity and, and the intelligence to invent new things and to help improve the world, there's a real possibility that comes out of India as well. So their future is extremely bright. And that's something that we all should be not only proud of, because in many ways, when we work with India and when we trade with India and when we converse with India, you know, in some small part, we're making ourselves more informed and making ourselves more educated in many ways, making our own selves more brighter about things. And we hope that whatever we transfer there is going to help to do the same. Because I don't want to see that country, you know, at war. And don't want to see that country, you know, hurting itself when it can continue to help itself. And I really think it's going in the right direction. And I'll tell you, of all the countries in the world that you can think of right now, it's, it's probably the one of the few that you can you can really say that about. And and thankfully, because it's a country that's the second largest of population in the world. So if they're not going right, boy, we're all in trouble. You know, imagine them with China together as, as an evil force. Can you imagine that? That that that's that's how important India is. Now I need to make sure that they're going to be staying on the side of right, but they're going to be staying on our side, <laughs> on all levels, whether it's trade or whether it's people, whether it's labor, whether it's the military, whether it's just doing the right thing in the United Nations or in the world. Because if you think about the world in a negative way, or you walk around all day afraid that the world is not going to be all that it can be, well, at least we can point to China as another example of a place that came from a darkness and, and went to becoming another light in the world. We always like to think here in America that we are the best example of freedom and that we are the best example of liberty and we're even the best example of capitalism and democracy. And I'm not saying that we're not. But I am saying that, you know, recently we've kind of fallen down a bit. And recently we've let people down, including ourselves.
and maybe we need to reassess who we are as America and Americans. But it's nice to see that there is another country out there that's trying to do its best to be a great example. And I definitely think that India has all of that and more to do that. And in many ways, they're doing that right now. If there's anything that America needs to copy from India, I can tell you it's this one thing. If there's not, and there's a lot of things, but if this is one thing is, you know, that we figure out a way to have a national ID and everybody just votes you know, in that a net box with that national ID, period. It stops any of the thoughts of a bad election. It stops even the perception of such a thing. Because once India has done that, about, I think it was about 25 years ago, they didn't have those kind of questions anymore. They didn't need to have guards and guns and soldiers at an election place because you don't know what was going to happen. There was a point like that in their democracy. We're getting there now if we don't figure out a way to make this a much more secure process. So it's a great thing that they have done for democracy's sake, and uh, hopefully we're going to learn to copy what they're doing. I know we used to be a country where we did everything on our own. We came up with everything, and there was nothing we needed to copy anymore. But America, like any other place, we're, we're full of humans that are not perfect. And I never believed for a moment that we're an arrogant nation. Sometimes we can be blind in some of the good things we want to do and screw stuff up. You know, um, Afghanistan would be a perfect example of that. But we still want to do well. People here still want good things to happen in the world and still believe that we can be a force to help that. And I don't want to sound like one of these new isolationists, but the truth of the matter is, and part of what even Trump, with you know, with all his issues, was trying to reiterate to all of us was is that we needed to make sure that first we were taking care of our own, and we need to make sure that other people out there who had the ability were doing the same. Whether that was the members of a national divorce organization like uh, NATO paying their own proper share rather than getting away with stuff and letting everybody else pay, or you know, or whether that was let's say the case of you know India or Colombia. Nations that have a, a good uh, endurance of, of democracy and have figured out how to stabilize themselves and become something respected. We don't need to be the only ones out there that are preaching about democracy. We shouldn't have to be the only people talking about, about freedom or liberty. There are others out there that should be taking part of that as well. I think that was the message from, from Trump, and it's not a bad message actually because... Not only do I believe it, but there's plenty of other people that believe it too. That we don't have to go back to some silly isolationism back in the Woodrow days of First World War. And that's almost how we got involved in that war. But we can say that we're not just the biggest guys on the block. We should only just be, in many instances, one of the people on the block that talk about these issues. We shouldn't just be the only one. Because that's really the problem with with America and the world in many instances is that that gets misconstrued that we're just trying to dictate something or we're the only ones that think we only have the only thoughts on that and blah 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 no we don't and we shouldn't 
I think India, as it becomes a power in itself, they need to have a voice out there too. And a voice about self-defense, a voice about national sovereignty, a voice about how to get along with other cultures, a voice about safe and, and secure elections, a voice about practicing a democracy. These are all the things that India are doing that they can have a voice on. Are, are they doing all these things perfectly? No. <laughs> we're not either. When we're America, we've been doing it longer than they have. And we're still not always doing it right. But we know what's right just as much as what India knows what's doing is right. So we have experience. We have a say in the matter. And we can have a say in the matter. I'm just saying that so should India as well. And there are other countries out there that they still need to learn how to do the same. Can't just be us out there. Can't just be having the United Nations meeting with 158 supposed nations and it's just us and a couple of people talking all the time. That gets old even for America. We need to hear from someone else. We need to hear from Taiwan. We need to hear from India. We really do. What are their experiences? What are their ideas? What are their dreams or their aspirations? How can we learn from that? Not just about what we can teach everyone. So I think here in America now, we need to start doing some learning too, not just some teaching. And I'm telling you all right now, globally, as this show goes on to 38 countries, and thank you for that, you know, India, even if they're doing it in a meek type of manner, even if it seems they're kind of like low-key, even if it seems that they don't have the brochure on freedom out there yet, they're pointing the way. They're showing us what can be done. All of us need to look over there and try to realize the good and the bad, what we can learn, what we can teach. That's how nations become stronger. That's how nations become friends. And I'm sorry to say, in the military terms, that's how nations become allies. And until we figure out a way to neutralize the North Korea or Iran or Russia or China, people who believe in freedom, they need every ally they can get. And I'm telling you right now, we need India. As much as India just might need us. Alright folks, until next time, God bless. That's MindSpeak. That is what a power, what a global power that can be India. It, it truly, it truly is. I'm really happy to have the show about that. Like I mentioned before, we can do other things in the future probably, but I wanted to kind of get some of those points across on this show about India. It's been on my heart and mind for quite some time. And I'm very proud that we had a lot of Indians that listened to the show, you know, and, uh, and make comments and, and, and positive comments. You know, obviously I regret I can't have the show any, anything more than English. So I, it's probably a lot of people I'm missing in India. I don't know, maybe like a billion. <laughs> but uh, maybe one day I can get some help on that because uh, I'm more than happy to, to see that happen. All right, folks, until next time, it's Mark Anthony Rossi, Mind Speak. Thank you for listening. 
Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.